It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. It should say winging it in progress. <laughs> winging it in progress is what we're going to do today. We're going to yeah. talk. This is what I like to call it. <laughs> Whenever we actually start the recording, it it speaks in both of our ears and says recording in progress. Right. And uh, I mock it. But today it's it's yeah, it's uh, winging it in progress. Yeah. Um, there is no definitive actual subject for today's episode. So we are going to kind of just talk about some different things. Uh, I had the great pleasure and honor of actually seeing Natalie that in person. Awesome. That was awesome. I was so thrilled. We got to give each other a hug. And there was, yep. Yeah. Got lots of hugs in there between, yeah. Uh, yeah, just in a short amount of time that morning. So <laughs> Natalie actually was going on a road trip. You heard us talk about it briefly in, in at least one episode here, uh, probably two or three episodes ago. Uh, going up into Missouri for a beekeeping seminar and since how they were coming through the Ozarks and they were going to have a little bit of extra time on their way home we all met up and had breakfast and hung out for a little while and chat and caught up so that was great and uh, it was it was a like I said it was a pleasure to get to see an old friend in person instead of on the computer I was so excited I was like it's not like I don't talk to you every week anyway (laughs) it's it's different It's yes. like there's this screen here. <laughs> no hugging here, right. <laughs> So it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And we got to see a little bit of your projects over there. So it was really cool to discover all the work that you've been doing because I know you've been super busy. Yeah. Uh, next time you're up in this vicinity, you'll have to actually come by like the house and see the hives mm-hmm. and the chickens and, and everything else. We didn't even make it that far. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Lots of projects for you. Lots of projects, indeed. So did you, uh, on on your adventures, did you gain any insight or were there any wow moments where you were like, I never thought of that or that's awesome? Like you, uh, anything that maybe you think that the rest of our listeners might be able to learn from little things that piqued your interest? So there was a lot. It was a very uh, intensive workshop and I really enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, because it's always nice to go visit with other natural beekeepers and uh, get their perspective and their tips and tricks and how they're looking at it from a little bit different perspective, most of which kind of jives with what we do. But there were still some things that were either good refreshers or, ah, yeah, well, I didn't look at it this way. And then um, some tips I'm taking back with me to uh, implement in my own practices as well. So we we love the exchange of ideas from that standpoint very good very good that's so, always fun it's definitely better to have that experience than uh, the one i was telling you about when i was in georgia and i went to a class and spent the entire presentation sitting back there like gripping the sides of the seat and biting my tongue because <laughs> i was so appalled and just dumbfounded at the information that was coming out of this presentation and it it did not make sense to like people that didn't know better and had never been introduced to that specific style of beekeeping they wouldn't have known any better right 
But yeah. to me, who has been doing that style of beekeeping, I was like, where is this coming from? And why would you do that? And that seems so backwards. So it's very, very good that you had the opposite experience because those are the those are the good ones to have. Those are the fun ones where you're like, oh, this is cool. I really like this. You know what? I completely forgot about that, but that totally makes sense. Or, you know, those aha moments where you're like, man, I never thought about doing that, but I'm going to have to try. Well, and there's something to be said about, you know, to a certain level, there's a little bit of an echo chamber when you go see people that kind of share your uh, general philosophy, but not, I mean, in this case, it was super well developed and, and very intelligently analyzed and put together, well thought out, right? So the, the, the points uh, being made are supporting by science, they're supported by uh, actual experience, and it's not just your average beekeeper telling you those things. So I think it does matter in what kind of workshops you go and attend. Uh, make sure that you pick somebody that's renowned, somebody that's experienced, somebody that's got the credentials, somebody that makes sense and that's respecting it, respected in their community. And, and mostly that's successful in what they do, right? So that's yeah. what I would recommend for everybody. You know, that is something that I kind of noticed after many, many, many years of going to beekeeper conferences and schools and things like that. I did many of them in Texas, the summer clinics and the the convention every fall or winter. Um, and then there were some little one-offs here and there that would pop up across the state that we could go to. But when I went to Georgia and I went to the beekeeper school there, it was it was kind of interesting because there were some things that were taught there that were not taught in on any of the other things that I had been to. But then again, you you do run into that kind of echo chamber type thing with anything in beekeeping, because if you go to enough conferences, you're going to start kind of hearing the same things. It's, it's the same concept as if you read enough books, eventually you're going to start reading the same thing and you're going to be like, All right, I, already, I already got that, I already know that. I do remember though, there was one class that I went to that really was kind of like a, it was a starter class and I think the only reason that I ended up being in it was because one of the people I was with wanted to go to that one because they really liked that speaker, but there wasn't anything else being offered at that moment that like I needed to be at. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll just go sit with you and like, we can keep each other company. And there were things that were mentioned in there that never crossed my mind. There were just fun, simple little things that I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. I love that. One of right. them was a cork using um certain types of alcohol the top of them not not a wine bottle per se but i think it's a type of tequila <laughs> has a top that has a cork that sticks out of it but then the rest of the top is a, like a round wood piece and right. the lady was talking about how it's a perfect stopper for your smoker you take it and you just plug it right into the end of the smoker and you push it down in there the uh -huh. cork stays in place but you've got a round handle that you can pull on to pull it back out it keeps things from blowing out of the smoker. It keeps the smoker from sending sparks and it also can put the smoker out. I was like, what? Like yeah. it was this simple thing sometimes can jump out at you and you, you're like, oh my God, I love that idea. And it's not something I would have ever thought of. That's funny you mentioned those because uh, one of our beekeepers is making those uh, smoker plugs and they're different sizes. I think one is almost this long and it's just kind of you shove it in there about yay much depending on your smoker and you then don't throw the sparks when you're driving around or, or anything like that. But uh, the other one is smaller. It's about this size. 
uh, for like maybe smaller uh, smokers or whatever. And then it's funny because uh, we were debating what we were going to call them uh, to put them in the store for the Hayes County Beekeepers Association. It was it ended up being the carrot and the pickle. <laughs> so we had we had fun. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, It'd make it make it entertaining all the way across the yes, board for that one. Exactly. How mm-hmm. funny. Yeah. But- wow. But so some of the things that um, were either reminded, uh, reinforced, or um, just kind of new to me, um, there was uh, information on basically uh, one of the things that I really um, appreciated is how to manage the bird's nest in a horizontal hive where you could use, if you give them some honey, um, a full frame of honey uh, before the um, winter comes in in the spring, they are going to know they have those resources and they're going to ex- uh, brood up faster and more because they know they have that backup. Whereas if they can still find that food source in nature and the spring flow, if they don't have that backup, they might not brood up as much. So I thought that was a great insight that um, um was very informative of how we could manage the configuration of the bruise nest going into winter. So there was some talk about winterization. And that's good because we're in fall. Winter is quickly approaching. The further north you get, the faster it's going to get there. So that's right. a that's a good tidbit for you know very timely information. <laughs> yep. Uh, so there was another one where you 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 can close in your bees when you're doing a split of any kind and you don't want the foragers to go back to the um, donor hive if you're too close to it, right? Uh, Closing them in and putting them in the shade or even in your garage for 12 hours and making sure they have ventilation so they don't overheat. It's important in Texas, right? Right. It was also important in Missouri, but um, to us it would be, that would interrupt the scouting activity um, so much that they would then reorient the next day. Um, instead of having to worry about that three miles versus three feet kind of a movement and the foragers in this case coming back to the donor hive because they know their way back, right? Yeah. So that would reset their compass basically. Yeah, I'd, I've never really worried too much about the whole three miles aspect of things whenever mm-hmm. I've done splits and everything. I will do some sort of obstruction that causes them to go through and have to reorient and or in some cases, just flip-flop the hives, you know, right. to where I'm going to get the, the foragers where I want them to be. Oh. Or, yeah. So I've, I've not really ever been a big, not necessarily proponent, but I've never worried too much in regards to that. Yeah. Because I was always managing them to the point where I could tell, oh, this one's way off balance, or we need to do right. this, or we need to do that. And because of the work schedule that I had, mm-hmm. most of the time when I was doing something like that, it was in the evening. And mm-hmm. so they were going to be going back to the colonies anyway. I could go ahead and finish up and then put something there to cause that obstruction. Right. So then the next morning when they come out, they're like, what is this? You know, and, right. and cause them to do their orientation then. So it's it's a good thing to have multiple options. Exactly. exactly. So basically more tools in your bag is the, the key here. Because I know, I mean, the, the, the putting obstacles and, and swapping the hives and all that stuff. But that's another tool. Uh, to kind of ensure and and better understand the ecology, uh, the biology of the superorganism too, right? So yeah. that back into the differentiation between the foragers and the nurse bees and why they matter and when they're needed. So another thing, for example, that was uh, discussed is how if you're going to do 
splits uh, and, and swarming, try to do it like six weeks before the honey flu so that you do get your brood break, but then you still got, um, you, and you don't spoil your honey harvest. So he, that was, he's kind of like, he had a kind of a time frame that he was explaining and um, he does a better job of it than I do. But that kind of stuff was, I thought, very interesting uh, to me to kind of like refine uh, the yeah. way I do things and think through the calendar of the colony a little bit closer. Well, and that that also harkens back to the whole aspect of you have to know certain aspects of beekeeping and know certain aspects of your area. So if you're going to try to do something before something like the honey flow starts, right. well, then you have to have a good idea of what are the precursors to that? What is the sign that it's coming? Yeah. When does it usually start? You know, is it going to start early or late this year? You got to be able to read that environment. So that that is a whole nother level of stuff too that kind of just goes back to show you why it's important for us to learn these things outside of just, oh, this is a worker, this is a drone, this is, you know, like there's things that go on outside of the hive that greatly impact the internal aspect. Well, and 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 that kind of made me think about citizen science, like um, ask all our beekeepers around us to kind of note, keep some notes about what blooms when and where in greater details. And because if everybody does that and we put it all together, uh, we have a lot more information about what, what's blooming this time, this year. I mean, it changes, right? Sometimes right. you have things that bloom that, that don't, you know, otherwise. He was giving the example, the example for example, um, for example, uh, of the, uh, there was nothing. One more time, else. just for an <laughs> example. <laughs> uh, the wild, when there was nothing blooming, but all of a sudden the wild grapes, uh, started blooming well because there was nothing else to eat they actually went and um, used a lot of the flesh and the juices from the wild grapes and that one year and that was the only year in in like probably like 20 years that he's been doing that that he had honey that tasted like grapes huh. right so that kind of was fun to think about the possibilities with that kind of stuff too right yeah that is very cool we the, uh we have grapevines at that new property that you were at and it was really weird. There's, there's a tree there that I have not identified, but it makes these ridiculously large bright green leaves. Mm -hmm. And there is a type of caterpillar that apparently that is its main food source because they basically stripped the tree bare and oh, they were wow. just, they were everywhere, but mixed in with the tree were grapevines and there were honeybees all over the place. So I'm looking at these leaves. I'm looking at these crazy looking caterpillars but I'm trying to figure out like why there's also honeybees everywhere. Ah. And then it occurred to me, the honeybees were there for the vines that were mixed in with it. And then the caterpillars were there for the leaves of the other plant. So it was really kind of a cool mix of things, but that just comes back to observing, you know, your environment. Um, I don't know. I don't honestly know that I've ever seen a grapevine bloom. It's kind of okay. like the fruit just magically starts to show up. Cause it's one of those things I don't pay attention to. <laughs> right. And, and the big, green leaves was it maybe catalpa i'm not sure i could look it up yeah, yeah yeah uh so another thing that i uh realized is that les does the two to three splits where he can still get basically three colonies out of it and he still gets honey production <laughs> because of the way he's doing it right you're so, that that is that is what it was sorry to interrupt it is the catalpa ah see there you go <laughs> You know how I know? Uh -uh. Because 
I looked it up. I, I didn't look it up. I saw those big leaves in the street of Eureka Springs, and I was like, oh, I wonder if that's Catalpa. And and so I took a look just now, and I'm like, I think that's what it is. Well, now I'm gonna have to go and be like, what caterpillar like eats catalpa? <laughs> I know that the bees. That's one of the big uh, trees for the honeybees, and they really like that. I think. Yeah, they do. Um, there are a lot of flowering trees in the Ozarks, which is a beautiful thing, and yeah. it also helps out drastically for the bees. So that is actually very, very, very beneficial. For yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So another plant that I was reminded of uh, for the importance for the bees was sumac. And we've got a lot of sumac starting to bloom right now. And from what I understand, sumac honey is delicious. So I'm going to start um, collecting and, and seeding sumac everywhere. So we're going to find a, one of our customers has a lot of sumac. So when it, it blooms, we're going to watch for the seeds. We're going to collect a whole, whole bunch and we're going to scatter it everywhere in all our yards. Yeah. So sumac is one of those things that that family is very large and robust. Mm -hmm. And you have everything from poison sumac up through trees and bushes like the flame leaf sumac and things along those lines. And they all do bloom. And the bees absolutely loved them. There was one in the old neighborhood there in Austin uh, that I think was a flame leaf. If it was either, it was either a flame leaf or uh, I think it was a flame leaf. Yeah, um, yeah. And at certain times of the year, when that thing went into bloom, the whole tree might as well have just been a beehive because they was covered in them. But it was also one of those things that it was specific times of the day. You'd mm -hmm. go by it and there would be no activity. And then right. the next time you'd go by at a different time and they were everywhere. Um, and they're also very pretty whenever the, everything starts to change colors. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, that was beautiful, by the way. All the trees up where you are, all the colors changing and the reds and the oranges and the versus the contrast with the greens. That was really cool. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so other things that I um, kind of picked up on was once you once you have resources that you want to protect from wax moths or small hive beetles we tend to tell people put them in the freezer and keep them in the freezer and he was just saying basically freeze them for two three days and then put them in um closed boxes completely closed because those insects if they can't get in it doesn't have to be plastic bags it doesn't have to be special totes it doesn't have to be any of that stuff once the eggs are killed you're done and and you can just kind of save them at room temperature, right? You could. I wonder though, so my only concern would be one, mold growth, because if the environment of whatever you're storing it in has any type of moisture and there's going to be moisture in that, um, mm -hmm. there's, there's twofold to that. The wax itself can actually start to develop mold on it. And then the other aspect of that is if it's too humid, the honey can still pull the humidity through the cappings in, in certain instances. So you could wind up with honey that is then fermenting inside the comb potentially because right. the bees aren't there to control any of those aspects of it. But I do know um, that when I harvested the Ross rounds, I harvested them into massive sized Ziploc bags so that then I could put them in there while they're still inside their frames, put them in the freezer, freeze them because it's going to be honey in a dish. And like you said, you don't want eggs or anything else hatching from wax moths or hive beetles or anything like that. So I went through and I did all this and then I took them back out and I set them up there because the intention was to go through and start packaging them 
And the ones that didn't have the nice presentation I would chop up and use as comb honey, they ended up staying in those Ziploc bags in the garage mm -hmm. for almost a year. And they weren't frozen. They weren't anything. I would just make sure I sealed the bag back, open it up. I would take out the one that I needed to pop the whole rest of the tray back in there. And, and they were always fine. It didn't change the flavor, didn't change the consistency. They didn't crystallize because it's still in the comb and it's not being agitated. It's not being spun around. And also, well, the other aspect of that though is there are there have been times that we have found honey actually crystallizing in the comb. I was but that's, say, yeah. that's because of what specifically is in that honey. There's Probably. been times that it's crystallizing as they're bringing it in basically. And it's gritty right. when you go through and extract it. Right. But yeah, in this instance, it didn't have that property to it. So it stayed liquid, which was really cool. No, that's really cool. And that's a good point about the humidity. Uh, you you probably could definitely do that with completely empty drawn comb. Uh, you don't, you wouldn't have that issue. I am kind of weary like you of putting in any kind of like honey or nectar or even bee bread in that kind of environment. But definitely with drawn comb, I would, I'm going to try to do that. Yeah. Well, I think that it, it definitely works for that aspect. I just am... I would rather like I've got the space. I've got a deep freeze dedicated to it. Right. So I would rather just put it in there, know it's good and leave it. <laughs> I have four freezers, stand-up freezers dedicated to all the comb and all the food and all the stuff that I want to kill in there. And it's just kind of like it's never ending. So I'm trying to find ways to empty out my freezers so I well, can there, there you go. This could be a potential solution to get rid of some of it at least. There you go. So another thing that um, was mentioned that I thought was pretty interesting was giving water in the hive inside the hive in the spring. You know, we usually the only liquid we put in there is like sugar syrup. And uh, he was suggesting putting water inside the hive in the spring. And he said there was a correlation um, with the uh, an increase in brood production linked to that because they basically don't have to go and forage for water uh, which is counterproductive and that encourages them to that that maximizes the efficiencies with which they're rigoring their brood so i'm going to try that why not right unless it's that's... cold right right unless it's cold because then you have you're bringing in a heat sink inside of your hive that might be hard um especially in vertical situations uh, where the, the source is in, maybe in contact with the other combs, like in with frame feeders, or it's above their heads if you have something above the, the inner cover. And But I think I will try it in the top bar hives, in the horizontal hives, because it's sitting in the back of uh, the hive. We talked about insulation over there, which kind of comforted a lot of my ideas, um, including the thermal mass, the my opinion is that you know yes the bees don't heat up the cavity but the energy that's being exhausted by the brood's nest is staying in that cavity and if you have no insulation the exchanges between the outside air and the inside air is going to be that much um, dramatic right so you're better off with thicker walls or insulation the thicker walls will bring in thermal mass and the insulation will just kind of um uh, allow for a barrier between the outside elements and um, the inside air. But that's something that I already uh, was doing and thinking about, but that was a good confirmation that I was not the only one or less than I were not the only ones thinking about it. Well, and, and to clarify a statement that you made there that I was, I was kind of thinking 
sometimes depending on the the level of where some of the listeners may be at the when we when you hear the phrase they don't heat the cavity it's the concept is basically it's not the same thing as having a space heater in there that's trying to warm up the entire room right. they are generating heat and that heat is actually being contained but it's right there near the cluster and it's warming up maybe the comb that the cluster's on either side of it and maybe the the facing sides of the comb adjacent to it but it's not warming up the back side the top side the bottom it's just right there where they're at where that heat is so that's the whole concept of they're not warming the cavity meaning they're not heating the whole box up but they are warming up the comb that they're on and the and the comb on either side of it and creating that heat and anything you can do to help hold that in and keep hold that there exactly. that's going to help them out drastically that's right because you do have some exchange i mean that cluster still they're not trying to heat up around them but that heat is escaping and if it goes away it's that much more they have to keep working if it doesn't go away then it stays right there and it keeps it maintains a little bit higher temperature around them anyway and yeah. so it's a little bit more efficient if you want to put it into perspective for yourself imagine if you were sitting outside and it was uber cold and you're trying to stay warm, but there's a cold breeze or a wind that keeps blowing, it's really hard for you to keep that heat right there with you, even if you're bundled up, because the wind keeps stripping it away. Exactly. But if you're setting still and there is no breeze, you can get a little bit of a heat. If you've got a structure around you to help insulate you a little bit, well, then you can actually start to get a little bit more comfortable. But at the same token, if you're sitting down beside a block of ice, you can feel the cold radiating off of that ice and it's going to make it harder for you to stay comfortable. That's that uh, um, uh, sink, a heat sink, right? You've got something here that's just kind of like serving as a fridge next to you. Yeah, basically, indeed. Um, so real quick, I because yeah. I, I had to look it up and see. So the uh, Catalpa tree yeah. has a very specific type of caterpillar that is a species of hawk moth called the sphinx moth. Oh yeah. And the sphinx caterpillar is the one that is most often in, uh, encountered on the catalpa tree. And it's often even called the catalpa caterpillar mm -hmm. or the catalpa worm is another word for it. And they often, not only do they feed on the leaves of the trees, but they will often strip the tree bare. Ooh. And that's that's exactly what I was seeing. It was those specific caterpillars. They're one of the ones that have a giant horn on their tail too, yes. um, a big spike to them. Yeah. So kind of looks like a tomato worm, but it's got uh, more color variation. It's got black and green. And so it's not just like a real bright green worm with white stripes and dots to it. It actually has other stuff. And then that spike is a black spike. So but that's, yeah, that's really cool. All I said was giant green leaves and you knew exactly what it was. <laughs> That was just a hunch. That's one of those intuitive moments, right? I don't know. Uh, but that was a, a lucky guess, right? So there you go. Very cool. Now we know catalpa tree. We know the info for the bees. We know the uh, sphinx moths and uh, those worms. So you guys it's have a, a lot more It's a food source all the way around for all kinds it's of critters. A, it's a great tree. Uh, those and the American lindens are really cool. And now you've heard also the sumac. So keep planting, guys. That's what the pollinators need, basically. That's right. Okay, so um, something that we talk a lot about uh, that um, I kind of looked at the slightly different angle uh, was the Italians are really good for... They, Italian queens, not the Italians in general. 
Yeah, you people from Italy, you're great now, but we're not talking Don't about worry, you. Don't worry, you guys are okay. Yeah, that's not what we're saying. But uh, the Italian queens of the colonies are great for pollination uh, and selling bees. So if that's what you want to do, this is kind of what you, you're going to want to uh, pick. Um, the counter um, to that is that they're going to need feeding and they're going to need treating. Why? Because, and that was the um, aspect of that that I hadn't picked up on, is that they're not adapted to the local uh, cycles of weather and forage mostly, uh, which I knew. But the reason why it's important is because if they keep producing, they, they pick up on um, the, uh, the season uh, warming up and then they keep going. They don't anticipate having uh, temperature drops or lack of forage in the dearth. And so they keep brooding up, brooding up, brooding up. So they have humongous populations and a lot of brood when they get started with the spring flow. But then what happens is that they don't shut it off. So they've collected a humongous amount of food. They have a lot of bees, but during the dearth or, or the changes of seasons, they go through all that food, right? So in the end, it's actually doing you a disservice because that's negating the honey production that you might have gotten because you've got so many bees now they're eating all those resources for you. Right. So that was another justification for using locally adapted survivor bees, survivor that's because they're more resilient and more um, resistant to, to the pests, but that might produce uh, fewer bees, but the proportion of honey might actually be, you know, similar if you look at it in the end and they don't need treating and they don't need feeding. Right. So that's something to keep in mind as well that I thought the way he presented it was another way to look at it that was informing my reasoning on why we recommend local survivor stock, basically. Very good. Makes sense. Uh, we've, yeah. we've already talked about some of the bad habits that the Italians have. <laughs> right, right, exactly. No offense to you guys in Italy or right. anywhere. <laughs> country, country aside, you know, but right. the insects specifically, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So basically, if you uh, choose Italian bees, you're setting yourself for feeding and treating. So right. Know that. And there's there's reasoning for when you may want that, and that's that's one of the reasons why wow. the commercial beekeepers use them because they do start early brood up fast and have a huge population they need that to do some of these pollination contracts that are going to happen in times of the year when the colonies normally are still in hibernation mode they're not really going into this let's rear you know start rearing brood gear up and go so they do have points where that is beneficial but for most of us out there we're not commercial beekeepers we don't need our bees to be doing that or you know it's not advantageous with all of the other drawbacks that come along with them for us to necessarily go through and, and try to, uh, I was going to say humor them, <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's not quite the right word, but you get the point. Right. And it's because it's exactly because they're so prolific in the, in the spring uh, that they actually simulate, uh, spring flows early by feeding them. But then again, the, it doesn't matter to them because they're not going to be following the natural cycles of weather and forage because they're being carted around. Yeah. They're right? following they're a calendar. Not, Exactly. And it's there it's the it's the yeah it's the industrial engine of agriculture's calendar and not the honeybee's calendar. They need predictability, which is what the Italians are offering to them, instead of um, adaptation to the local cycles. And yep. uh, that's something that the backyard beekeepers should be relying on for uh, healthier bees. Is basically what I would argue. I would agree. Okay, let's talk about books. Books. 
uh, he reminded me why I wanted, I've been starting to collect so many of the old books, ah. all the 1800s, early 1900s beekeeping book with Dr. Doolittle and, and, and just kind of all the greats of uh, beekeeping and the understanding the history of uh, beekeeping is helping me figuring out uh, a lot of the forgotten wisdom that now is being replaced by a lot of the practices that are being used in conventional beekeeping, right? So we, we've changed a lot of things because of commercial beekeeping and a lot of uh, pollination and it's fine for them, but for backyard beekeepers, that's kind of made us forget a lot of the tried and true methods that actually um, still makes sense today. So I'm digging into a whole lot of uh, old books and I'm gonna add a few more to my list um, because of it. Uh, and I just intend to spend the dreary, weary, cold, wintry days uh, 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 doing some reading of that kind of old writing. Have That's you read a lot cool. of books? Have you read a lot of those old books, John? Not old, old ones, no. Um, I have not. Are you, are you, um, maybe I'll, I'll send you some or, or point you in the directions as ones that I think are really particularly cool. Yeah, absolutely. I, I go through my phases where once it finds, and up here, I can actually do this down there in, in Texas, it wasn't as easy, but, um, I do go through my phases where once it finally gets to the point where I cannot be outside doing stuff because yeah. I can't tolerate the, the cold and everything else. Well, then I switch over to, I lounge around and read. And hey. so that's when I get all my reading and stuff done is usually in the winter months um, when it's just not hospitable to be outside. Nothing else to do. <laughs> oh, I want to do and it's a complete change of uh, subject, although it's kind of related because you emphasize a lot of um, swarm trapping instead of buying bees, which um, what I want to do this year is a lot of what I call guerrilla um, uh, trapping and just kind of get cheap traps, maybe like some. Um, five gallon buckets or something and just kind of hang them into the trees all over the place and uh if i lose a, a bucket then too bad but if i if i do that i can probably um if i respect the you know open trees edge a little bit higher put the right swarm lures in there i'm probably going to use slum gum to coat the buckets and yeah smell good uh reuse all that stuff that you know has been from from old comb um and I'm hoping that I can catch at least 50% um, of those swarm traps using some of those techniques, uh, most of which we have talked about in our bee club, but he reiterated. And one of the things that he was saying is uh, slow release tubes he likes to use in which he puts um, uh, some lemongrass essential oils. So I'm, I bought a bunch of those slow release tubes. They're tiny little tubes, right? Yeah. There's a version of the swarm commander that comes in those little vials. Yeah, that's so what is it? yeah, exactly. But you could just use them with lemongrass oil. Yeah. Right? You don't have to buy the, the expensive one. And then I'm going to make myself, uh, which is something I had started doing actually, some little pucks of wax with lemongrass oil in it. I bought a super big uh, bottle of lemongrass. I'm going to show you oil for that purpose. Look at that bottle. Holy crap. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna make a lot of swarm uh, lures using that, um, but that rekindled my interest in in doing that. They would do it that way. So, 
So are your swarm traps going to be put up around the vicinity of all the different out yards and everything that you have, or are you just going to be like willy nilly putting them up everywhere? Yeah. So yes, and <laughs> <laughs> here's the gorilla part of it. <laughs> That's here's the gorilla part of it. So uh, at least one or two in each of my yards. I don't want to put too many because then that confuses the bees. Uh, and it's useless, right? You don't want too many, but you just kind of have to keep an eye on them. Uh, if you're remote, maybe you can put more than one um, because then a second swarm can move in before you have removed the first one, right? Right. And making sure that I'm going to, anytime I've had swarm trap that's being successful, I'm going to take it down, put another one immediately. In that place. Yeah. yeah. And um, the gorilla part of it will be public parks, uh, the edge <laughs> of parks, uh, the, uh, maybe and the, the trees that I see here and whatever. Not trespassing, obviously, but uh, maybe just kind of like um, I can. I'm probably going to go and talk to people um, in, in areas where I want to swarm uh, trap swarms and tell them, look, I'm trying to. Uh, provide a service to the community and to the bees and just kind of um, help giving the bees a better conditions of living while removing those from uh, potentially being uh, bees that will move in into human structures and cause problems where people are going to have to to do removal so it's basically uh, taking out some of those swarms out of the the, the pool list for people having to fight them off yeah, yeah. uh there <laughs> There was an individual that I don't, I don't I have no idea who they were, but there was an individual individual that did that in Austin and they put the a, a legitimate nuke box, like a wooden nuke box, yeah. mounted it to a tree mm-hmm. in a community garden that was yeah. attached to my neighborhood. And yeah. I saw it and I was like, that is a swarm trap. <laughs> and so, and I didn't do anything about it. I just kept an eye on it. They did not put any identification on it. They had no markers on it. They had no phone numbers on it, which you're supposed to. If you're going to put stuff up, you need to have your contact information on there so that you could be contacted. They did not. And I advised because the the garden council for that area was very concerned with what was going on and and nobody knew who did it. I talked to them. They called me. Yeah. Oh, that's a separate one. That was that's the other Yeah, that was the other one. So that was the one downtown at the, um, what do they call that? Sun Festival Beach. That was the Festival Beach Garden in downtown Austin. And yeah, that was after I had already moved. And I was like, you need to talk to this lady. She'll help you. (laughs) Yes. So I told them to contact you. This was when I still lived up there. And it was literally like I could walk from my house. It was one of our walking routes when we would take the dogs for a walk. So it was a community garden attached to our neighborhood specifically. And it was like what it what it was was a uh, area where at one point there had been a flood, and mm-hmm. so the city zoned that that everything had to be taken out and demolished, and it left the streets in place, and that was kind of it. So you have these streets and then these empty lots, and so they turn it into a community garden area, and you could still walk it by walking the streets or riding your bike or whatever. But anyhow eventually like it was up there for a couple of months nobody ever saw anybody coming or going from it and then bees finally did move in and when they did i gave it a week everybody was freaking out i explained to them there's nothing to worry about this 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 but if you do have to mow because they have to mow around this tree let me know and i can give you a suit or something if you need to well they put off mowing for like three weeks because of it still nobody had ever come out there and checked this box 
So oh, finally, yeah. I just took it down. <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, freebies for me. Like I tried to be nice and give you the opportunity. You left no contact information. And nope. the neighborhood right. council is getting very up in arms and very like they're going to end up spraying it because right. they're worried they can't do their stuff and the kids might get hurt. And, you know, regardless if it is legitimate fears or not, that's how people then react badly to things. Yeah, so I, I suited up and went out there and took it down, took it out to the apiary. <laughs> That was awesome. Freebies for you, free yep. swarm trap for you, all good. All, I had a nuke box, had a swarm trap, had bees. It was all good. <laughs> uh, no, that's awesome. And 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 that's a good point. I'm gonna. I bought a spray painting stencil. Yeah. Uh, spray paint my logo on it with my the company name, so that in case you know somebody's looking for info, because you know you. I mean, I'm saying guerrilla uh, trapping, but it's really still within. Reason, yeah. then, it, you know. It's the whole use common sense and common courtesy. Right. And, you know, if it is somewhere where you're questioning it, get permission. Most mm -hmm. of the time, if people understand and they know, they're totally okay with it, especially when you put it like you said, right. this is a, a means to keep them from being a nuisance and being inside your house right. or somewhere else. They'll mm -hmm. go in here instead. And then as soon as you see them in there, you call me and let me know. I will come take it away. Right. And, you know, no harm, no foul. It's all good. Yeah, well, I guess the way I mean it is I'm going to put up a lot of them. Yes. <laughs> and and then hoping if and if I get 50% uh, success, if I put like 60 of them, that's 30 colonies. That's most likely uh, either wild or feral potentially. And in that case, that's locally adapted survivor stock that I would want in my uh, apiaries. But on, not only that, by doing it all around our BRs that are scattered We've got 40 uh, across Hayes County and Travis. We bring in some genetics, that genetic diversity to you, to our bees, right? So that's the other reason I want to do it. Yeah, you also help when they're around your yards too, specifically yeah. your yards. You also help try to catch your own bees if, in yeah. case they left and you didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, so that's important. So uh, what else did we talk about? Oh, I was uh, that was funny because the pro the 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 talk was about deep frames, not that there was horizontal deep frames, right? So the argument has always been the bees prefer to move uh, vertically uh down and up the comb and they don't really move laterally that's been something that i've been hearing a lot usually from people that don't have uh horizontal hives that are or only have people. never never looked inside of a hollow log that's fallen and, down uh, <laughs> or that i've never done removals and then don't realize according to uh my remover friends which you're one of them uh but one of my uh other remover friends has mentioned that it was like up to 80 percent uh of the colony being removed where in structures and soffits and configurations that were more horizontal. Uh, but even beyond that, what was funny is that the argument was made for uh, horizontal deep frames uh, for vertical expansion and movement. And then they, I, I, I took notes because that struck me as being really compelling. If they have too much space, so like if you leave that, like usually uh, uh, using a follower boards will will really con compress your brood's nest. And but if you remove the, the follower boards and you have all the frames in the back, they're going to expand horizontally way before they expand vertically. So for, uh, follower boards and they'll move down because they have nowhere else to go. So that's forcing them down. But if they're not forced to do anything, they will expand horizontally before they go vertically. Yeah, and we've we've talked about that many times because. The way that they do is they start a comb and then they start one next to it. 
Exactly. And yes, they're going to keep growing that comb until they reach the boundaries of whatever container they're in. Mm -hmm. But then they're going to do another one and another one and another one. They're going to continue to expand outward because that's how they build their comb. (laughs) But they do the expansion outward without necessarily going down uh, all the way to the bottoms. Right. Yeah, they don't complete that comb before they start the next one. That, so that, that sideways expansion does definitely happen more progressively than the downward expansion of this single comb. Right. I have to correct something I said earlier about the six weeks before the the dearth. That, that was all backwards what I said earlier. Okay. So scratch that, everybody. Go I back and have, erase those notes. <laughs> yep. So that was my memory being faulty. So basically... Six weeks before your scheduled dearth or what you anticipate your big summer dearth to be is when you want to rear your queens. So it had nothing to do with honey production and nothing to do with splitting. That was way off. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it does make a little bit more sense, though. The best time to do that would be six weeks before the dearth, which if you think about it, six weeks is going to be a month and a half. And if your dearth is actually we'll use central texas for an example your dearth is going to start sometime in mid-july um it can be a little earlier a little later depending on the season but sometime in mid-july that means that you're really going to be want to raising your queens in may like the end of may middle of may that's going to be kind of where you want to hit that coming into june you've got one month potentially maybe a week or two after that so if you're in the middle of may that would give you that good spot and if you think about it May is far enough into the nectar flow down there to where they've already started gearing up. They've started brooding up. They're bringing in resources. They're expanding and they've got a lot of drones because they've already been raising those drones, which makes it prime, prime territory for raising the queen because now you got a lot of boys for her to mate with. They're already sexually mature at that point and more are on the way, but they've got such an influx of resources coming in those queens that you raise are going to be very well fed, very nutritious food, and they're going to be very healthy, robust, big, full queens as well. So that does make perfect sense. Makes right. way more sense than the first time. <laughs> then my faulty memory, right? And the poor, I was like trying to figure out what I was saying. And I was like, that's not, that's not very compelling argument or very compelling point. So that, not that makes sense. Okay. That does make sense. Well, there you go. Correction corner for everybody out there. Sorry. In the same episode. So. That was good. That's see, there you go. That's catching it right there in real time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So another point that was made that I thought was pretty compelling is that you can either, it's all a continuum. And then you can have either a lot of uh, brood production and honey production, or you can have lower mortality. Basically, when you push for honey production and, and uh, you're going to end up with um, colonies that are going to be more susceptible to pests and diseases because you're brooding up more. And if you're pushing for um, uh, less mortality, you're going to kind of give up some of that honey. So it's kind of a trade-off. And you finding out where you're going to be on that continuum is going to be important to your beekeeping practices. You have to decide if a healthier colony that's going to um, be more perennial, that's going to last longer, is more important to you uh, than honey production. Because when you're doing focusing only on honey production, you're probably going to lose more colonies. Um, and so there's a price to pay for that. Yeah, and that makes absolute sense. So, I have a I have a question that is off the topic, sort of. Um, did you guys get to 
do anything with his bees or see his bees? Yeah, so that was a two-day workshop. And the first day, Saturday, it was a spent, you know, reminding some of the basics, some of the principles of biological, natural beekeeping, basically. And then lunch, and then we went to his apiary and looked at his hives and, and talked about some more of the management with the honeycombs. And there were a lot of small hive beetles in those. But the point was made that I've heard less, and we talk about it often, is that when you don't um, put pressure, well, when you do, when you don't put pressure on the pests, but you put the pressure of the pest onto the bees, basically you're uh, pushing the bees to select mechanisms that are going to control that pest. And so he was mentioning that initially was losing a whole bunch of colonies to small hive beetles, and then after a while it stabilized and now he still has a lot of small hybrids but the colonies are thriving despite the presence of small hybrids and when I say that he's got probably about twice as many well or three four times potentially depending on the hives that you're looking at he had quite a few probably like 20 on one comb and those are big combs right but yeah that's a lot of small high beetles that is a lot on one comb specifically but the other part of that too is which comb were they on were they on an unused comb that was in the very front or the very back and if so there's a reason that they're all in that one spot because is the other aspect of it too is not just that the the bees finding the mechanisms but a strong healthy colony will be able to defend against those sorts of things and i proved that to myself by accident in like my second year of beekeeping, maybe the third, I think it was the second or third year. Um, Cause I had the chickens by that point as well. And I ended up having one colony that was so overrun with hive beetles that when you picked up the inner cover, it was black. And it, there, there was no, like you could smash them by just putting your whole hand down on it. And they overwintered with the colony. I was certain it was going to die. It didn't, they didn't affect anything because the bees kept them all segregated up to the inner cover and wouldn't let them come down into the colony. So that does make total sense as long as the colony is strong and healthy that it would uh, not really be too much of a hindrance. But my question was, if you got any interaction with the bees, did you notice a different in the bees temperament? They were actually much, well, so up in Missouri, they were not, they don't have a lot of Africanized genetics, I'm guessing, but no, those bees were very calm. Um, there was one colony that was a little bit more uh, pickies when everybody was in a circle around it and his daughter was working it and somebody, you know, they were not, some people were not wearing veils or anything and one person got stung because she was in the flight of path and she had bare skin with a black, you know, uh, strap and she got stung on the shoulder and then she started moving around, flailing around, bees started getting more agitated People started getting more stressed out. She, she was, was helping scared. fan the pheromones. <laughs> right. And then she's marked. And then bees started stinging everybody. I mean, not everybody, like three or four people. The, the people that didn't have protection on. Yeah. So that's a good reminder that the, what you want to try to do is avoid the first thing. And um, when you are stung, make sure that you pull it out and you smoke it up or camouflage it. Dr. Osterk likes to uh, grab a handful of mud, wet mud, and just kind of rub the site of the sting because it camouflages that. So very often he'll come back, he's got all muddy, (laughs) which is cool. Uh, And so that's a good reminder that also the energy 
that's uh, surrounding the hives is being felt by the animal, just like a horse feels nervousness or tension or fear. Um, the same way the colony of bees can feel that, right? So at least that's what Les and I have experienced. I don't know if it's scientifically proven, but that's our experience. Yeah. Yeah. They, that was one of the things that I had noticed up here. The bees also, I noticed the um, size of the bees. The bees up here were more plump and mm -hmm. uh, they were, they definitely have a better attitude than most of the bees we had to deal with down there. So I, I was just curious if you noticed that as well. Yeah, absolutely. They were a lot calmer. Um, no, no mistake about it. And even in larger colonies. Yeah. And uh, this is also completely off subject, but you mentioned his name. Today is actually Dr. Osterk's birthday. So happy birthday, Dr. Uh, Osterk. <laughs> Dr. Osterk. I'm going to have to uh, text him. And, and like, I, I've been so behind. I just came back last night, right? So Yeah, um, yeah you, spent, you spent all day yesterday driving <laughs> yeah, in a storm. Was, yeah, and I'm trying to catch up on four days of non-work, basically. So yeah, uh, I will. Thank you for reminding me. Happy, happy birthday, Dr. Osterk. Yeah. There you go. Our good old buddy there with all the fun honey remedy medicine cure-alls and all the scientific backing. We love Dr. Osterk. He's cool. He's awesome. He's actually in our, we invited him to be in our apprenticeship program because he's so awesome and we love having him. So this, this, we have fun once a month. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That works. Um, well, I appreciate you going through and sharing some recaps of your recent little schooling adventure and getting out there to get to go do a little bee seminar that is very cool i am very uh, envious in certain aspects because that one i was not aware of until you told me but there's also another one coming up next month and i'm not able to go to either of them at the moment because i'm basically stuck i have uh created my own yes um too many too many responsibilities to allow me to be like vacate the area for more than a few hours <laughs> you've created your own vortex <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> it's almost a black hole <laughs> <laughs> well and that's why i was so glad that we got to spend some time with you because i was like we're taking away some of his uh precious precious time so yeah it no was that was good. all right i needed breakfast anyway so it was perfect <laughs> that worked out yeah that's good so, well, there you go, everybody. You got a little bit of an insight from uh, Natalie on what we, what was it called? It was a, what was, what did he actually call it? A natural beekeeping workshop, I think it was called. Is that all it was? I think so. Okay. Um, yeah. So that was Dr. Leo. She went up there to see Dr. Leo Sharaskin. 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 Yeah. And uh, so that was up in Missouri. And that's what, that's what we've been talking about this whole time. And so hopefully you got a little bit of information from there, maybe some things that made you think about how you should or shouldn't do certain aspects of your beekeeping or other things you can add to it. As always, it's really just talking points to make you think and have a little discussion. And, you know, who knows? You don't have to do them. You can do them. It's up to you. Well, and we encourage you to go and learn from other people is basically the bottom line here is that you can always learn something from everybody. Uh, and even if it's somebody that doesn't agree, in this case, they, you know, Dr. Sharashkin agrees with uh, pretty much everything we do, um, except that he prefers um, layance hives versus top bar hives. Right. Uh, but, you know, it, even going to beekeeping clubs or schools and even uh, going to people that have different beekeeping styles and philosophies or that are from a different era that were not from our time, then you can learn a whole lot. And I encourage you to do that. 
That's right. It's there's a wealth of information out there. You just have to be willing and able. Willing right. as in like you got to be willing to listen sometimes to mm -hmm. what they have to say and and pick right. out those little grains of beneficial information that's in there. And then able is in my case being able to actually get out of the house and get there. <laughs> right. the time. And that's something the hardest part for everybody, right? Finding time to do that. But pick what you what makes sense for your practices and get rid of the rest. There you go. As always, we hope that you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to talking to you again next week. But until then, be good. And be mindful. <laughs> you use your finger. That's my, that's my tactic. Copying you. Bye-bye, <laughs> everybody. Bye. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees.